0: Take your Bible and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And we started last week with an introductory sermon on this great letter from Paul to the churches at Ephesus and the area around Ephesus. The the city numbering about 250,000 people. A city which Paul spent extensive time in. He spent more time here, at least as far as we know in his ministry, than any other place recorded for us. He spent three years In this place, he founded the first church there and the work expanded exponentially once he left. It spread throughout the area around Ephesus, even around the villages there. The suburbs, we might call them, became evangelized because of the work which Paul began in his ministry, his missionary journeys. And so we're starting this march through the letter to the Ephesians. And I want to remind you that not tonight, but starting next week with verse three. We're going to be, uh, actually, next ser- the next sermon will be on uh, verses 3 and 4. And uh, so, next Sunday morning, we're going to teach from Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. And then that night, or Thursday night, however it might be for you and your family, you'll be gathering in homes as small groups and discussing how that doctrine, how that teaching, how it changes your life, how do we apply it into our hearts, how do we... Out, work it out in our families, in our friendships, in our work, places of work. And so, uh, so I really I'm excited about that. And if you haven't signed up yet for those Bible studies, if this is the first time you've heard about those, if you're new with us and you think you might be interested in staying with us for a while, I want to encourage you. There's a list in the back. You can sign up on your way out today, and we'll place you in a group. And we'll try to do that in consideration of your. Uh, place where you live, and also uh, the day you would like to meet, either Thursday night or Sunday night. And and I want to encourage that to you because I think it's so crucial that we pray together over the Scripture and we talk about it among ourselves. And this is just a good way to kind of kickstart that. Maybe you're not used to doing that very much in, in your home or around your home. Maybe you are. And you'd be great to be a part of the group to teach the rest of us how to do it. And so this is, uh, I think, going to be impactful for our lives and I want to encourage that to you. So if you have any questions you can see me. We're not going to meet together tonight and talk about these verses so I'm going to try to be very plain spoken this morning because and and I open myself up to you. You can come ask me questions about this sermon anytime. Now we're looking at Ephesians, the, the sermon series being a look at the eternal grace of God and you realize the letter is Almost half of this letter is about prayer. It's either a prayer which Paul actually prays, or it's an encouragement from Paul to the people at Ephesus to be in prayer. I mean, prayer dominates this letter. And this letter is filled with the will of God. The will of God. Talking about the will of God. Important phrase. You need to to think about that phrase as we're teaching through it. And the phrase, in Christ... In Christ, we're going to talk about that. It's all through the letter, and in fact, it's all through Paul's letters. But this morning, we're just going to look at the introduction. The first thing I want us to see from the first two verses is that the this is about these verses are about the man and his calling, the man and his calling. Look with me at at chapter one, verse one, and we'll read it together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we see immediately the name Paul and it just jumps off the page, doesn't it? You've become familiar with Paul if you've read the New Testament very much. Paul fills the book of Acts. He's a, he's a magnanimous Personality, it seems. He overwhelms everybody in the New Testament outside of Jesus Christ and Peter. Everybody else is kind of swallowed up by this man. I mean, there's others that the letters mention. Even Paul mentions other men in his, in his ministry. Timothy and Tychicus and Titus and, uh, and just a whole list. Uh, even names that children enjoy like Rufus and others that catch our attention. But Paul just stands out, doesn't he? As we look at this man, now I want us to think about who he is. Because as as he looks like a superhero almost to us, I want us to remember he is a man. He is a man. He gives us some biographical information. If you want to read it in your own time, in Philippians chapter 3 is a good place to go and read about Paul and who he is and where he came from. He says in Philippians chapter 3 that he is from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, what's so significant about the tribe of Benjamin, you might say? Well, there were twelve sons, weren't there, to Joseph. And Benjamin, Benjamin was the son, excuse me, Benjamin to Jacob was the son, he and Joseph born as the most unique of the twelve. All of the sons were born during Jacob's traveling, except for Benjamin, who was born on the Promised Land side of the Jordan River. No other son shared that distinguished fact. And so Benjamin and his people were esteemed in Israeli history as special, as set apart, as the only ones born in the land which God promised to his people. And so he's from the tribe of Benjamin, the most exalted son. And you remember Benjamin, right? The youngest brother The brother, right? Joseph being before him. And Joseph being his protector. carried off into Egypt. And all the other ten sons come. Sent by Jacob. There's been a famine, right? They're starving to death in the promised land. And they don't have anything to eat. And they come and their, their brother, who they sold into slavery, is now second in command of Egypt. And he's in disguise. And they don't know who he is. And who does he want to see? Benjamin. I want to see my baby brother. But he doesn't say it's his brother, does he? He says... Are you the only children? Uh, No, we have another brother. But our father loves him and he won't send him. You know, he's kind of, don't you sense the sibling rivalry? Well, he loved Joseph and Joseph's gone. And he loves Benjamin and Benjamin's his baby. He won't let him get out of the tent, much less come all the way to Egypt. He sent us leftovers to get some supper for us, right? And Joseph says, no, I want to see this younger brother. Is he still alive? Yeah, he's still alive. We'll bring him, and then I'll give you something to eat. And we, we meet Jacob's angst over that young man. And you parents can feel that, can't you? And so Benjamin was special in so many ways. He was born in a very unique place. He was next to his father's heart. And he was next to Joseph's heart. And then we see that the tribe becomes distinguished in another way. Because there was a man named Saul, right? Who was a Benjamite. Who was the first king of the people of Israel. He stood head and shoulders above all of the men of Israel. And that is not that great of a feat. I mean, I don't want to build it up too big. They think that the Israelites probably averaged the men did about five foot five. They were short. (laughs) You know, they've done a lot of research on this. Jesus was probably about five foot six, five foot seven, kind of a small guy, not real big. But, but Saul. Probably six foot, almost a giant in the nation. And he was a Benjamite and he was chosen as the first king. Right. And so there's all this elevation about the Benjamites and not only that, but about the name Saul. And what is Paul's Hebrew name? What is his name in Acts nine? When we meet him in Acts eight, Acts seven, Acts eight, and then Acts nine, what's his name? Saul. So he's of the most unique tribe and he gets the kingly name. Can you imagine the pride in this man's life? Don't you see it in Philippians three? Even when he's just rolling off his his lineage, he says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees as in accordance with the law. I'm perfect. I'm blameless. There's no one like me. I was circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law. I am I am if anybody is in based on his lineage it's me it's me I'm Saul right but that's not how he's introduced to us here his name is Paul take your bible and turn to acts chapter 9 and let's learn about this man how is it that this man came to know the Lord Jesus Christ well it was very first of all we can see it was very personal the the encounter was very personal it happened very dramatically. Uh, there's, there's no other conversion experience known to man like this one. He is unique even in his conversion. No one else has ever that we know of been converted this way. Look what happens. He's on his way to Damascus. He's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He goes to the high priest. He asks for letters against the Christians at Damascus so that if he finds anyone belonging to the way, the way of Jesus Christ, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? This man of pride on his face, blinded, we're going to find out, by the bright light of heaven, the Shekinah glory of Jesus Christ. The man who thought he needed no one because of his lineage met a man who had yet greater lineage, Jesus Christ, on the way to Damascus. And when he met him, he fell on his face and cried out, Who are you, Lord? And look what he says, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. His conversion experience is unlike anyone else's. He is to rise up after having been prostrated before the Lord, broken, crushed, seeing his exceeding sinfulness in that moment and his helplessness. Who are you, Lord, is the cry of a man who's helpless. A man who is afraid. A man who doesn't know what the next thing coming is. He knows he doesn't have the power to overcome anything that would blind you with his very appearance. Who are you, Lord? And the answer, I'm Jesus. The one you're after. The one you persecute. Now we continue in the story. And it says that the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose and opened Uh, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. He was on an extreme fast. He was broken. I wouldn't suggest it. Medically speaking, it's almost impossible to go three days without water or without some kind of fluid intake, but... God sustained him and he was being broken, and he was being crushed, he was being brought under the hand of Jesus Christ into salvation. Now look what he does. He, he after this, now there, there was a disciple named Ananias in Damascus. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas looking for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Go to the house. You're looking for a man named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And the Lord said to him, listen to this, go, for he is a chosen instrument." Of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, and he entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled. With the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food he was strengthened. And so we find this man Saul. The persecutor of the brethren. Going to Damascus. To kill. To arrest and bring to their death. All of the Christians there. And we also find out in Acts. That his name is changed by Jesus Christ. By God himself. From Saul. From Saul. Now, what's so significant about this change? Well, I told you about the name Saul. If you look it up in a a book of definitions of the Bible words, you're just going to find a description of the king, King Saul. And then you're going to see that a man named Saul of Tarsus is very prominent in the New Testament. It's not really a a definition that I have been able to find, but basically it's the most revered name in Israel, one of the most revered names kind of up there with David and Elijah and, and so many of the other great names from the Old Testament. When your mama gave you a name in this day and time, it meant something. And she had high expectations for her son, so she named him Saul. And he met those expectations. As he says in Philippians, he was with, without blame according to the law. He had risen to the highest ranks of the, of the Pharisees, the most strict law-abiding people of the nation of Israel. He was a student of the highest of the Pharisees, Gamaliel. And so he had reached the highest of ranks. He was a prideful man. He was a man of high stature. And when he met Christ, he was crushed. He was blinded physically. And he was put into a desperate position. Now, now why do I bring that out? I see his conversion, though it is unique, as an example to us like Lazarus of how we are saved. Was, Was Saul looking to be saved? What was, was he running around saying, man, I sure would like to find out how to get saved. Boy, I really want to be saved. I have this inner desire to do something so that God might save me. No. He, he believed he was okay, didn't he? He saw himself as already fit for the kingdom of God. He saw himself as fit not only for the kingdom of God, but he would be right there probably below the prophets. I mean, like at the front of the line. Right? And yet he needed to be saved. And when Christ saves him, begins the conversion process for him, what does he do? He blinds him. Why? Because he gave him a physical, outward problem to match his inward spiritual problem. Because inwardly and spiritually, what was Saul? He was blind. He could not see. Oh, he was a righteous person. And some of you here today are righteous people. You're good. Oh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't dare do anything offensive or that might hurt someone's feelings. I mean, you're committed to righteousness, right living before God. That, that's the, that's, that is utmost in your mind every day. You've got a list you want to abide by. You know, on the list, respectful attitude, courteous language, stay away from alcohol. Don't have lustful thoughts or looks. You've got a whole list. I don't know what your list is, but you probably matched it somewhere in the Bible. Find proof text to say, hey, this is who I am. This is how I live. And I want to tell you something. If that's you today, you're no better than Saul of Tarsus. You're blind. You cannot see the Gospel. The Gospel message needs to infiltrate your heart, penetrate who you are, crush you. You need to be, before God, broken. Broken. Like Saul, laying on your belly, saying, who are you? Because you're not serving him. Because he doesn't need to be served. And so your good behavior has become a proud badge of honor you wear on the externals. And when someone doesn't meet your standards, you let them know about it. They ought to be more like you. This is who Saul was. And when they don't meet up to your standards, you kill them. Now, Obviously in our day you don't tote them off to jail like Paul was gonna like Saul was gonna do, obviously. But you kill them with your mind. You think of them as dirty and rotten and awful and needless and you wish they didn't exist. That is a little peek into the heart of who Saul is. He had no time. He didn't he didn't he pitied the fool, to put it in Mr T language. He pitied the fool who didn't meet his standard. Who he believed was God, that he believed it to be God's standard. And God crushed him and God blinded him outwardly so he could see that inwardly he was blind. And he left him begging for help. Listen, you've come here today and you've got your list and you say, man, I've got it all together. Look how good I am. Oh, God, aren't you so proud of me? God would say, you're blind. You're dead. You need to be saved. You might not be looking for it, but he can and will save you. And how did he save him? Did he do anything? No, he's sitting there blind, not eating and not drinking. He's such in turmoil, begging God, help me, help me, help me. And God sends him help. He didn't go looking for help. God sent him help by the man named Ananias. And what does Ananias do? He presents the gospel to them. You say, well, that's kind of odd. He lays his hands on him and prays for him. What's what's the gospel about that? In other words, Ananias says, Saul, I can't heal you. I can't save you. I'm only a channel for what God wants to do. God has sent me to you. Listen, brother, I wouldn't have come here had God not sent me. I'm scared to death of you, honestly. But God said to do it, so I'm doing it. And he laid his hands on him and he prayed for him. and, And said that God would heal him. And what happened? The scales fell off. And he cried out to be baptized. Why? Because God had sovereignly regenerated his soul. You can play the Christian game. You can look like a good person. You can be moral to the extreme until God makes your soul alive. Until God takes the scales off your eyes. Until God gives you power to walk. Until God comes to you and changes you. You cannot be changed. And you cannot be saved. This is the message of the Gospel. This is a picture. Saul's life is a picture, children, of what it means to be saved. I want you to know that. It's a picture of it. And some of you need it. You need to see this picture. You're blind. You're hopeless. You're dead. I don't care how good you look. I might emphasize it this way. I might put it in these terms. If you're here today and you are the worst of the worst I don't know who's sitting in here not all of you and I don't know what any of you do behind closed doors you may be addicted to all types of things drugs pornography gambling you may be cheating on your wife or husband you may be beating your children behind closed doors you may be thinking out how plotting how to get rid of your spouse don't say it doesn't happen Oh, it happens every day from good church people who got it all cleaned up on the outside. I don't know who you are. Maybe you're the rottenest scoundrel that's ever walked the face of the earth. That may be you. And you're without Christ. And let me just tell you, a physical picture of who you are, you are like the guy that dies at home and nobody knows he's dead for a month or so. And then these neighbors say, you know, it's strange. Mr. Carter hadn't come out of his house lately. Maybe we should get some help. And so they go in and they find this bloated, decaying, worm-eaten man. That's you. If you're here without Christ and you're living that lifestyle that is worldly and lustful and and all about sin, that's who you are. You're dead and you're rotten. And you stink. And when people see you just on sight of you and spending a little time with you, they think you're rotten. And they don't like being around you. And you are dead. Okay? And you say, I'm glad I'm not that guy. Man, i got lots of friends. I'm a moral person. People like being around me. I'm pretty good. I'm nice to my wife. I open the door. I pay extra so she can have the the nicest places when we stay out. Or when we eat, we go to the nicest restaurants. I serve my children. I'm always on time at work. I'm always doing what the boss has called me to do. I'm a good person. Let me explain to you physically who you are. Without Christ... You are like the granddad laying on the bed dying and his family gathered around him, holding his hand, laying across the bed, begging and pleading that they love him and they care for him and he dies. You can move his arm. He's not stiff with rigor mortis. He hasn't bloated. No worms are eating him. He's dead. He's dead. I will say it again. He is dead. Is he, which, which of these two is deader? The guy laying in the bed nicely dressed and just passed away. The spirit went out of him and his family's there with him. He's still warm on the outside to the touch. He's still got pink in his skin, but his brain is dead and his heart's not beating. Is he deader or is the bloated person with the worms eating him deader? Who's deader? Y'all are intelligent people. Who's deader? Huh? Neither one. That's it exactly. They're both dead. They're both dead. And what it would take to change either one of them is that God would have to make them alive. And that's who you are if you're here without Christ. You are dead. That's who Saul was. He was dead. He was cleaned up on the outside. His friends said, man, he wears the right clothes. He goes to the right places. He's nice to people that are like him at least. He is a good person. But he was dead. He was blind. He was lame. He was without hope in this world. That's who he was. And so if you're going down the road of self-righteousness or legalism, let me tell you, you won't outdo Paul. You will not be better than Saul of Tarsus. You cannot. You don't even know the law well enough to be as good as him. You don't know the Ten Commandments. If we took a Paul right now, you want to? Somebody want to stand up? How many of you can stand up right now and recite the Ten Commandments? Even just the Ten Commandments. And Paul knew not the Ten Commandments, but 600 plus laws. He knew them like the back of His hand. He went through them every day in ritual, outwardly, inwardly. He went through it every day. He was blameless according to it. And God said, you're blind, son. You're dead. You're deaf. You're lame. You're hopeless. You can't heal yourself, but I can heal you. And He sent someone to Him who didn't do anything but pray, God, give him sight. God, give him sight. And God gave him sight. Scales fell from his eyes. That's Saul, who then becomes Paul. This exalted name, this prideful man was renamed. What does this name mean? He was given a Roman name. God God gave him a Roman name because he was going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And this Roman name was a nickname. It's not even really a real name. No one named their child this. No one. It was like what you got afterwards. You know, kind of like chubby You know the kid called Chubby in school. Why is he called Chubby? Because about fourth, fifth grade, he got chubby. Everybody started calling him Chubby. That stuck. It became his nickname, right? That's what Paul was in the Roman world. It was a nickname. How did you get the nickname Paul? Because you were small. That's what it means, small. He was stuck with a name the rest of his life to remind him, son, you're nobody. Without me, you're dead. Without me, you're blind. Without me, you're hopeless. Your name is Paul. When you introduce yourself from now on to everybody in the world, you've got to say, I'm small. I mean, God put it in front of him. God put it in front of him. And yet, he never hides from that name. We never see him, after his name is changed, we never see him revert back to calling himself Saul. He wore Paul like a badge of honor. I am small. I am the least of every Christian, he will say in chapter 3. In First Timothy, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. He knew once he was saved, I'm small, I'm nobody, I'm useless. I was dead, I was blind, I was lame, I was deaf, and God saved me. He made much of God and little of himself. That's what made him an unbelievable superhero to us as we read about him in history. Not because of him, but because of God. And because, like Piper said on our video, he didn't go around pounding his chest about who he was. He said, I hope to preach Christ, and that's it. And him crucified. Every message was about Christ, never about him. Paul, that's how he starts out. We've been through one word in these verses. i got to go through two verses. This is just the first point, the man and his calling. Okay, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, He is his calling is he is an apostle. He is an apostle. Now, apostle means messenger, okay? And, and, and it's very confusing to us, I think. We, we don't understand the levels here. First of all, Jesus was the super apostle, not Paul. Because Jesus was sent from his father with a message, And the message was, though you are dead in your trespasses and sins, God in His great mercy and infinite love has made a way that you might be saved. And it's me. He was the ultimate and original apostle. That's one level of apostleship. Second level of apostleship is the twelve apostles. Okay? And I know you're saying Judas is one of those. Yeah, kick Judas out. He's the son of perdition. And replace him with Matthias. Matthias was chosen in the upper room. That wasn't a mistake. There will be 12 apostles, according to Matthew 19, verse 28, look it up later, that Jesus says, when I enter my glory and I'm in my kingdom, I will sit on a throne and you 12 will sit on, the 12 apostles will sit on thrones and will rule and judge the tribes of Israel. That's the 12 apostles, including Matthias. Paul is not one of those, I don't believe. He is of a third category of apostle. Called by the will of God, having seen the resurrected Jesus Christ and been appointed to His position by Jesus Christ, not by man, but yet He's not one of the twelve. And He tells us that in First Corinthians, doesn't He? He says, look, I'm one untimely born. I am not worthy to be counted with those twelve. He's not just being nice. He's being honest and accurate. I'm not going to sit on a throne and rule over Israel. I don't have that honor. That's not me. I'm not going to do that, but... But I am an apostle appointed by Christ. I'm of the third category. His ministry is attested by miracles. Hankies that touch his body are mailed to people who are sick and they get well. A miracle worker. Hit great success. He, there's nowhere Paul didn't go that success didn't happen. I mean, the church flourished when Paul showed up. Everywhere he went. I mean, if you're a pastor... Or a Christian sharing your faith, you read about Paul, you're going to be very discouraged. Because the dude shows up on the scene, he stays a couple months, gets stoned once, twice, beaten or thrown over the wall thinking he's dead. And then he goes back in the city and revival breaks out. People start getting saved left and right. I mean, that just doesn't happen every day in every church. It just doesn't happen. So it's attested by miracles. He's called by Jesus Christ and set apart for the job by Jesus Christ. He has great success in his ministry. He is a pioneer. We see it in Romans 15. Romans 15, he says, I have no desire to build on a foundation that somebody else built. I want to go to people who've never heard, who've never heard the name of Jesus Christ. That's where I'm headed. He was a pioneer. He didn't he was not a local pastor. He pastored and shepherded, but he was not a pastor. Peter was a pastor. Paul never called himself a pastor, a shepherd. He is always an apostle, a fellow servant, a fellow worker, some other title, but not pastor. And the reason for that is he had a specific ministry. And there are in this third category a few men, I think, that fit there. Barnabas is one. I believe Barnabas to be one. Junius is another, mentioned in Romans, as known greatly by the apostles. Even prior to Paul. So there are more than just one man in this third category, okay? Paul obviously towers over them, but there are others. And then we find a fourth category of the use, a way we can use apostle. And that's as those like Paul Washer. Those in our day like Dave Sitton. Or or, or others who go to unreached people. And they preach the name of Christ, pioneering the ministry with the message of the gospel. They're apostles also. They're sent ones. They're messengers. They're they're not on the level of Paul. But they do have extraordinary gifting and calling. Okay? And so, where does Paul fit? Obviously, I told you, I think he is one set apart differently than the ones today. The ones today are not directly called by Christ. They didn't have a Damascus road to point back to. They don't have three years in the desert with Jesus as the professor. They don't have it. Paul does. He's different. He's separate. But he's not Jesus and he's not even the twelve. He's very different. Why is he different from the twelve? Because they went to Israel and where did Paul go? To the Gentiles. To the Gentiles. That was where he was headed. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. My message that I bring to you is Christ and He sent me. I'm not sent by humans. I'm sent by God's Son, Jesus Christ. So, when we read this, we should automatically say, this is not just a man's philosophy nor his opinions. This is God's holy word. Every word in this letter is from God. Paul, an apostle, a message, and the message is of Christ and from Christ, by the will of God. Now this will of God phrase is four times in the first chapter verse 5 it says he he predestined us to adoption by the or for the uh, to the purpose of his will in verse 9 we see that making known to us the mystery of his will and then in verse 11 in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will So this is not just in verse 1, but verse 5, verse 9, verse 11. It's a point of emphasis. Four times in one chapter, he says, His will. This is not the will everybody's trying to find. Paul's not saying, I was searching for God's will and I found it for my life. No. He's talking about the eternal plan of God, which will happen. The sovereign plan before the foundation of the world. That's why he's an apostle. In other words, I didn't choose myself. No man appointed me. I'm not preaching a gospel message from somebody else. Christ is my Lord and he called me according to an eternal plan which will happen. The will of God here is an eternal will and it is a definite will and it is a sovereign will. If Paul had no thought, no I no imagination that he would be an apostle. He was appointed to be one. He didn't make himself one. He was appointed to be one. He was called to be one. He was, by the will of God, before the foundation of the world, set apart for this task. So that's the man and his purpose. Secondly, we see the audience and their position to the saints set apart. They are set apart. This is a positional statement, not a purity statement. This is a statement Paul makes about all believers everywhere, not super people. You know, you got Christians and then saints. No. If you are a Christian, you are a saint. You are set apart. Now, that should lead to a different lifestyle. I'm not saying that. But the different lifestyle is not what makes you a saint. You are a set apart one, therefore you have a different life. It's not the other way around. Don't ever miss it. Don't ever miss it. When you read saint in the New Testament, when you see Paul or Peter talking about the saints at a certain place, it's not the exceptional Christians in the congregation they're talking They're talking to all believers. They never call them a saint. They always call them saints. Look at the plural. You see it? He's writing to the saints who are at Ephesus. And Peter talks to the saints in the dispersia. Why does he talk to them collectively as Saints are set apart. We're gonna get into this deeper, but because we have been set apart in Christ before the foundation of the world as His chosen people, a race, a holy priesthood, never, ever refer to someone as a saint in the singular. That's not how Paul used it. That puffs up the ego. When we start calling each other a saint, we start giving these high thoughts of our character, and boy, I must be pure. They must really think I've got it together. It leads us down the sinful road Saul was under when he was Saul. No, Paul's talking. He would talk to the whole church as saints, not one individual. That's that's a, that's a problem that starts later in church history. Calling one person a saint, it's the saints. Just like he doesn't ever, you never ever see in the Bible priesthood of the believer. But you do see priesthood of the believers, the whole congregation. Why? Because you are not a priest to yourself. You are a part of a collective royal priesthood, which is the body of Christ. So you don't pull rank. I hear these people all the time in local churches talking about the priesthood of the believer gives me rights. Not any more rights than the person sitting next to you in the pew. You're just one Of the members of the collective priesthood. There's no such thing as an individualized priesthood in the New Testament. And so he says to the saints, he references, in other words, I'm not writing to the whole city. I'm writing only to set apart believers who are in Ephesus. I know there's a lot of questions. We dealt with it last week. I believe this letter was written to Ephesus. I believe it was written directly to them and it was circulated later but it was not written to Laodicea and it was not written to just in general uh, F.F. Bruce who I love believes some theory of a blank is here and then the carrier of the letter filled in the name that he took the city That, that just has no exegetical proof that is just a figment somebody just pulled that out of their head and said that looks like a good theory let's do that their response to critical theology is to make up something more plausible no, just take it as it is. It's to the people at Ephesus. It's the way we've seen it for years. So it's to the saints in Ephesus. So they're located in Ephesus. Their position physically is Ephesus. That's where they are. We could say to the saints who are in Anniston. Okay, it's where they live. It's where they work. It's where they play. It's where they live their life. And are faithful, in other words, believing in Christ Jesus. They're positionally in Ephesus and in Christ. There's two kingdoms. Paul's bringing out two kingdoms. There's the kingdom you live in in this world and you're a citizen of that kingdom for us would be the United States and the state of Alabama and the principalities of Anniston or Jacksonville or White Plains or wherever, Alexandria, all the little cities. We could say that's where I live and you're not telling Othea that's true you live there but we can also just as easily and just as rightly say we are citizens of heaven because we are in Christ so we can say I live here for the moment my home is in heaven that's what he's saying to the saints in their earthly home Ephesus who are faithful believing in Christ Jesus they have a home a permanent home with him in heaven he's going to bring it out in the latter part of this chapter but He's saying, this is my audience, the people of Ephesus who have a home in heaven. That's who they are, and they're set apart by the grace of God. Finally, we see in these verses that the purpose, the ultimate purpose and source for this letter is God. Look what he says in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Before I do that, let me... I, I see my note here. Let me just say this. In Christ, why have I spent some time on that? Why have I talked about that? Why have I labored over that? We're going to labor over it a lot more in the weeks to come. I hope you don't get tired of it. It's very crucial. Paul writes this phrase 164 times in his letters. He writes it 34 times in a little little letter like Ephesians. There's very significant meaning to this phrase. We're going to look at that a little deeper, but I just want to leave that with you. Now, what is the ultimate purpose and who is the source? The source of the letter is God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who the source of the letter is. Now, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We look at these things. we I know I'm guilty of it, aren't you? We start reading at verse 3. I hear some of you that literally, I know you may be saying it even now as I'm finishing this sermon. Okay, that was great. Now on to the real meat of it. Paul's not throwing away words when he introduces what he's going to talk about. Nor is he wasting time when he closes a letter. He's very intentional. You say, well, he says this all the time. Grace to you and peace from God are some derivative of it. It's in almost every letter, Carlton. What's the point? Let me just give you the point. Let's look at this. It's exciting. Grace to you. Now flip over. Hold your place there to Ephesians 6 at the end when he's closing. Verse 24. He opens it with grace to you. He closes it with this. Grace be with you. He does that often in His letters. Verse 24 of chapter 6. Very common close. Grace be with you. Grace to you. Grace be with you. Now what does He mean with this? The the emphasis needs to be and the thought needs to be centered around to and with. You know, I thought, we should emphasize grace. Well, grace is significant, but in here, to catch what he's doing, we need to see the to and we need to see the with. In the opening of the letter, in verse two, when he says grace to you, I take him to be saying, I'm a vessel, I am, I am a conduit of grace to you. This letter I'm writing to you is grace to you. It is a gift from God. So when the readers stood up in the audience and said, Grace to you, they 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 their minds exploded. God is giving us a gift. God is so loving. God is so kind. He sent us a letter. Grace to you. Now at the end, when he says, with you, the letter's finished. The letter's closed. People might be desperate now. Well, we've heard the letter. Now what? We got the grace today. What about tomorrow? When you take the letter as grace from God, it will be with you. It will be with you. When you make decisions about where you should live, His grace be with you. When you decide where you should work, His grace be with you in that decision. That's what Paul's saying. When you're trying to decide whether I should marry this person or not marry this person, the grace of God be with you. When you're dealing with life's burdens, he says... If you've been in this letter, the grace will be with you as you make the decisions, as you carry the burdens, as you live daily life. And so I want to make an applicable point right here. I've been very commentary-like. I realize that all sermon. But get this. You can't know experientially the grace of God in your daily life without the Bible. You cannot know it. You say, well, I mean, why? Because it is the conduit of His grace. A Christian who does not feed on the Word of God cannot know the grace of God. Not experientially. Oh, you may positionally be in the grace of God. I'm not questioning that. There's a lot of people who are going to be in heaven... Who never tasted the nectar, the sweetness of His Word the way He wanted them to. The way He caused them to. They'll be there. They're safe. But they're safe through drudgery. They're safe through heartache. They're safe through the power of God in the Gospel, but without the experience of it in their daily life. Without the Word of God, you are like a human locked in a cage with no food. That's who we are. Without the Word of God, can I say it another way? Without the Word of God, you're like the people of Israel in their tents saying we have nothing to eat. God rains down from heaven manna and they say, no, nah, I don't like manna. I'm not going to eat it. Well, then you'll starve to death. Well, okay, we'll eat it. We don't like it. Okay? If we could just have some birds, some meat, we have fish, we, I mean, sardines. They're crying for sardines. And God says, oh, you like sardines? I'll give you one better. Here's some quail. And I've told you this before. My granddad used to say, it was plucked and wrapped in bacon, roasted already. It fell to the ground. Yeah, that'll hit you. Next time you eat the dove, you say, man, I mean, they didn't have to pluck it. They didn't have to prepare it. God made it and he laid it for them. And they, and, and then we're just like them, aren't we? They ate a few weeks on that and they said, this is boring, this is awful. Well, who would want to eat? This is dry. No. Listen. When he says grace to you, he's saying you can't have it without this. This letter I'm writing to you is grace. If you want grace in your life, Christian, read it. If you want grace in your life, Christian, memorize it. If you want grace in your life, Christian, meditate on it. If you want grace in your life, Christian, hear it. If you want grace in your life, Christian, put it into action. Live by it. Grace to you. That's why you shouldn't throw the introduction away. You just missed it. Grace to you and peace. Shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word, and it's commonly misunderstood to be just some feeling of peace. That's not what it is. It's more than that. Grace to you and peace. What is he saying? God is at peace with you. Think with me. You in your person, Saul in his personhood, as he was born from his mother, was an enemy of God. A sworn rebel against his will. And now he's able to say grace to you and peace. God is at peace with you saints. He's not at war with you anymore. If, if that doesn't just, if the hair doesn't stand up, if you don't just say, I'm going to have a fit. I'm going to run, Carlton. You better move on. Look, run a little. It's all right. No other group of people in the world can say God is at peace with them. We can. Not because of Saul, but because we're small. We're Paul. And we're set apart by His will. According to His holy and eternal sovereign will. We're set apart and now we received grace through the person of Christ and His Word to us. And we're at peace with God. Oh, Christian... You think God's against you? No. God is for you. You think there's no hope? Yes. He is for you. You say, you don't understand. My life is a living hell. It might be. But the great thing about shalom is it's not conditioned on what you experience day to day in your life. It is a positional statement. God is not at war with you. That's what he's saying. And so when you go to work and your boss is the biggest problem, to say it nicely, you've ever met, you don't get unpeaceful, you say, when it comes, the sin of discontent and anger comes. It's going to come, isn't it? And all of a sudden now, because of this introduction, you can say, but God is at peace with me. Through Christ, He has set me apart and He's not at war with me. So, I love my boss. He is a royal pain in my fanny, but I love him because God has lavished his love on me. God is not at war with me, and I will not be at war with him. You want to find peace as far as you can with all men? You've got to know the peace of God. You've got to know he's not at war with you. And so, here we are. Grace to you, the channel, the conduit, His Word. Peace from God. It's peace with God and it's from Him. In other words, that peace that we positionally know now is experienced in our life. Let me tell you how it works out. Just, just let me tell you uh, personally how it works out. It works out this way for me. When you receive A diagnosis. You pick it. A diagnosis. Medically, that is not good. Or it's pending. The only hope you've got is the peace of God. You can't make it without the peace of God. He's not at war with me. And so if I have this terrible thing they say I might have, He's still not at war with me. And so it is for my good. I don't know how it will happen. I don't know what He's up to. But it's for my good. And uh, that's personally how it has worked out for me, without getting into the specifics, and how I've seen it work out in my friends' lives. Okay? And historically... David Brainerd, in his late twenties, dying from consumption, a, a disease where you drown to death on your own bodily fluids, got up every morning in the cold and frigid wilderness trying to reach the Indians, the Native Americans, the godless ones in the woods that nobody else wanted. He didn't know how to speak their language and he was trying to reach them with the gospel. We're whining because we got to go across the street and talk to somebody who speaks English. And he didn't even know how to talk to these people when he met them. But he had such a burden for them and wanted to see them come to know the peace of God from God. He wanted that for them and he wanted them to have the grace of God in their life. And so he went to them with his disease and he died in his twenties because he went to them. If he had stayed in a city and received medical treatment, he might have lived to be 40. He might have lived to be 50. He gave up 30 years of living in this life. And people in our day would call him crazy. And you know why he did it? Because he knew God was at peace with him. And he knew he had received the peace of God into his life. And so he went to them. You say, David, you're going to die. Okay, I'll die. It doesn't change who God is, and it doesn't change that He's at peace with me, and it doesn't change that He's commissioned me to reach people with His Word. I'm going. I can only imagine, mentally, as I read His, as I read His, uh, His autobiography, which is His, just His journal. I've read most of it. I can only imagine the journal entries when He describes laying in a tent, choking on His own fluids, having lit a fire because cold made it so much worse when it was cold outside. So he would get in his little teepee. He would light a fire inside the teepee. Can you imagine the smoke? He's already choking on his own fluid. Now there's smoke all in the place. And he's saying, he's saying to God, how? How do you do it? How do you lay there and thank God for your life when you're choking to death? Because he's at peace with God. He says, okay, God. I'm not at war with you, so all is okay. I'm going to die, but it's all right. Paul, who is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, is writing a letter to saints who live in Ephesus. And he is extending to them grace which comes from God and peace through the Lord Jesus Christ because here it is. You say, I can't live like that. I may have cancer and may die and I, I don't have any hope. I may, my baby may die. My neighbor's dying. My friend has lost his job. I'm losing my job. My house is burnt down. Whatever the physical condition, I can't take it. And I would say, you're human. You can't take it. So you need the one who is superhuman, Christ, because he, third definition of shalom is Christ. Christ is the peace of God. As a matter of fact, He is the grace and peace of God. In in the letter to the Ephesians, He's going to tell us in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, you Gentiles and you Jews realize that Jesus Christ is peace. He is peace. So you're here today and you say, I'm Saul. I'm not like Paul. I don't know about grace and peace. I say, then you need to know Christ okay what do I do some things you better not try to do don't clean your life up try to make yourself better you will fail and you'll be worse off in the end than you were in the beginning the one demon you drive out of your living room will turn into seven demons The end will be worse than the beginning. Don't clean your act up. Don't act nicely. Don't receive the applause of man for your good willpower. Don't do that if you're lost this morning. Do not. Please do that. Continue to be the rotten scoundrel that you are. And fall on your face. If you're serious and you really see your condition sinful, lost, blind, dead, that's who you are, fall on your face and say, Who are you, Lord? And He will give you the answer He gave Paul. Believe it. I am Jesus Christ, the one who you have rebelled against, the one who you are persecuting. More than that, leave here, leave here like the publican. You hear this message, you say, I want that grace, I want that peace. Then bow your head and say, woe am I a sinner. And Jesus looked at that man and said, he had left, left his place and went home justified. Why? Because he did nothing to save himself and he cried out, I'm a sinner. I am a sinner. Have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. So don't clean your life up. Don't walk an aisle. Don't get baptized. Don't sign a card. For goodness sakes, don't join a Bible study and start trying to live a good life. Fall on your face and say, who are you, Lord? I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. And cry that until he does it. Until he does what? Until he makes you alive. Until the scales fall from your eyes. Until you can hear. Until you can, can walk. Until you... All of a sudden, leap with faith. I believe in Him. That's all I'm saying. Don't do anything else. I'm not asking you to come to anything front up here. I'm saying Christ is before us. And so look to Him like they look to the serpent lifted up in the desert and cry out, Who are you? Help me, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. And pray that prayer from your heart until he changes you and live your life, and you say, "Wait, well, some sinner is going to leave, go get drunk this afternoon." When well, in the middle of his stupor, in the middle of his filth and stupor, the words of grace can flood his heart, and he can say, "Oh God, I'm a sinner." Have mercy and be saved. He's better off in his drunk stupor than he is in the front pew of a church acting like a good person. Somebody's going to leave here and they're going to beat their wife this week. They're going to punish their children ungodly. And in the middle of that stroke, I pray God from heaven hits them in their heart with You're a foolish sinner. You better hope I have mercy. And I hope their response is, oh, God, have mercy on me. And then they might be saved and their child or their wife. I pray that they go back to work, these sinners, and they keep living immorally before their bosses. And in the middle of the cursing match, then God strikes their heart with, you're going to go to hell. You're my enemy. And they say, have mercy on me sinner. I don't want clean, polite, good people. I don't want them. I don't want Grace Fellowship to be that. I want us to be to be in Christ. That's all I want. And I'm selfish enough and stingy enough to want it for every single person in this room, but I can't do it for you. And your wife can't do it. And you cannot do it because he has done it he has lifted up and he promised if i'm lifted up i will draw all men to myself and so that's my prayer for you as we close this service look i'm praying i'm going to pray and we're going to close and i'm praying this the only announcement i want to make is is just the one i made about signing up you sign up I don't want to make any more announcements. We're not have a. Dis- this is the dismissal, so to speak. This is it. And the place, if you would please, would you would you just, if you want to talk football, if you want to talk about other stuff, if you want to get catch up with well, another, that's fine. Do it in the hallways. Do it in the lobby. Do it outside on the front porch. It's a nice weather day. Go outside. Do not stay in here and just carry on frivolous conversation. Because what I'm asking, and you say, well, it's gonna point them out. I don't care. If you're a Christian and you, you 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 know Christ and yet you don't you're not experiencing His grace and His peace, stay here and seek Him for it. And if you're lost, stay here and pray that God would have mercy on you. If if He wills that you do that, do it, do it. That's the call. And we're going to dismiss with this prayer, and you go, or you stay. It's up to you. Let's pray, Father in heaven.